0: Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll discuss how President Biden can get a big win by bringing the Saudi Crown Prince to Jerusalem, and we'll hear from the evangelical writer who thinks that might actually happen. But before that, It's getting me so,
1: it's getting me so.
0: Last week on HaArts.com, our correspondent Elison Kaplan-Sommer broke a scoop regarding Israel's rules for tourist entries into the country. Officially, Israel asks every tourist who enters its borders right now to have proof of vaccination against COVID-19. In practice, there is a much more concerning situation, and Elison is here with us in studio to discuss it today. Hi, Elison. Hey, Amir. Great to have you on the podcast again.
1: Great to be here, always.
0: What's going on? Can a person who is not truly vaccinated against COVID enter Israel today?
1: So what we have here is a combination of very, very strict rules and very lax enforcement, um, which we know in most situations kind of opens the door for uh, lying, cheating and misrepresenting. The background is that it began on November 1st that uh, Israel was allowing pretty much anybody And any foreign citizen who, by its definition, meets full vaccination to enter the country for the entire pandemic, that wasn't the situation. At first, we didn't let anybody in. And then you had to go through a very uh, complicated process of um, being verified as a first degree relative of an Israeli citizen or have a special reason and wait for weeks to be uh, approved, etc.
0: And I have to say that, you know, on its face, this is something that we are happy about. We want tourism to come back to Israel. We want the tourism industry here to revive. Itself, People who work in this industry have had a very difficult two years. So it's not a bad thing that Israel is open to tourists. Again, it's a wonderful thing. But regarding the actual implementation of the vaccination policy, this is where you discovered a big hole in the enforcement.
1: Yeah. Well, I learned of it through volunteers who were helping people, you know, navigate, filling out the forms to get into Israel. And some of the requirements that Israel was having had these like sort of very subtle um, issues, like uh, they weren't allowing mixed vaccinations. If you put in, oh, I had a Moderna vaccination and then I had a Pfizer, et cetera.
0: The system didn't accept it as full vaccination.
1: Exactly. Or if, you know, you were vaccinated 22 days apart instead of 23 days apart, et cetera, it wasn't accepting. so the uh, the people who were helping them fill in the forms kind of didn't know what to do about it because it was an automated system. And they were like, okay, you know, so you didn't have two Pfizer's. You had a Pfizer and Moderna. Just put that you had uh, two Pfizer's.
0: Just lie a little bit in the form and then what happens? You get caught or...
1: No, (laughs) you fill out the form and the form takes your word for it that you were vaccinated on the dates that you were vaccinated, how you were vaccinated. And within less than a minute, you are the proud owner of not only a form that says that you can get on the plane to head to Israel, but you get the much-coveted Green Pass, the Tav Yarog.
0: Israel's vaccine passport, in a sense. Exactly. So, you know, for, for an Israeli citizen to get that Green Pass, you actually need to have the physical proof of vaccination. But what you're telling us right now, and this is also what you broke in your story last week, tourists who want to enter Israel simply fill a form online stating that they have been vaccinated. They don't provide any kind of proof from their health provider or from their state government. And they get emailed the green pass. In a way, this is the easiest vaccine passport in the world.
1: Exactly, exactly. And uh, there is a second uh, form where you can upload your documents, but it's kind of like an afterthought, you know, after you get your pass, if you feel like it, you can show us your proof.
0: So basically, first of all, you get the green passport mm-hmm. and the uh, authorization to enter Israel. Then if you want to invest spare time, you can upload some kind of proof that you are actually vaccinated. Most people that you have talked to, that you interviewed for this article didn't fill out the second form, correct?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean a few did, but it really didn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem like anybody's checking it. There's really major like mistranslations. It's very difficult form the second form um, you have to find it. They don't you know push it to you um, and uh, and so it, there's no evidence that I've been able to find of anybody in any way checking this actual form with your actual documentation um, to prove that you came to Israel.
0: And some people that you interviewed for this article were people abroad who are planning to visit Israel and got all the documents. And then you found out that they did not actually have to submit proof of vaccination. But even more interesting was the fact that you also interviewed people who were already in Israel. They already entered the country, have been here for a few days, and they tell you that basically nobody checks with them if they have actual proof that they're vaccinated, correct?
1: No, yeah. no. Uh, nobody has checked. And th- here's the really crazy thing. A lot of the people who came in, let's say, a week ago or a few weeks ago or, you know, before the November 1st um, uh, system uh, happened, when they were in through the old system of first-degree relatives can get in, they had no way to get a green pass. And so they were asking, how do we get a green pass? And the health ministry was not answering the phone and the, they were, they were, just didn't know what to do. And so there, a solution was discovered, you know, again, by people consulting with each other, all you had to do was fill in a form as if you were about to fly to Israel, you know, with your name, with your passport, etc., And they will send you a green pass while you're already in Israel. Well, you fictionally misrepresented the fact that you are about to fly to Israel.
0: You published that story last week and you reached out obviously to the health ministry for response. And what they told you was we're aware of the problem and working to fix it. Yeah. Have they fixed it?
1: No sign, you know, as of today, I've, you know, double checked.
0: We are recording this podcast on Sunday, the 14th of November at three something PM. So far, no progress towards fixing it. I hope that by the time this goes live, maybe we'll have an update.
1: Maybe. But you know, for now, it's the honor system. You know, they take your word for it. I was vaccinated, I'm fully vaccinated, I've had my second vaccination within six months, or I've had a booster shot. And what's really problematic is that there are many people who are sort of medically qualified to be led in the country and have a green pass, but there's no way they can document it. They uh, they've recovered three months ago. There's no digital recovery certificate from America. And Israel won't let you in without a digital recovery certificate. So they have all the temptations to simply go on this form and make up three va- fictional vaccines.
0: At the end of this story, we could be looking at potentially something that would contribute to the beginning of a fifth wave in Israel.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um. You know, you are basically... I, I I. had a dilemma as to whether to publish this. Do I want the world to know that you can easily cheat your way into Israel and get a get a green pass? But I was worried, you know, like, got the story within the first week of them allowing it and i thought if i reported and if they plug this hole in a timely manner then you know before it gets passed around every whatsapp group in brooklyn and everyone discovers that they can easily you know lie their way into you don't even have to forge documents israel is not accepting the non-digital recovery certificate because they're so easy to forge but they're not even requiring people to forge anything all you have to do is lie
0: what would actual implementation look like
1: actual implementation would look like you you know what many countries in the world already have, which is a process which could which could take up to a week. You know, instead of within 24 hours, this form that you fill in is 24 hours before your flight to um, have a little more lag time and have enough staffing in the health ministry to actually look at documents. And when someone says that they are vaccinated, look at a vaccine card. An alternative would be to do what the United States is doing. I don't know, you know, how well it's being implemented, but as far as I understand, the United States, when a foreign citizen flies in from abroad, airline personnel is required to look at their vaccine uh, documentation before they board the plane.
0: That could be an interesting idea, although it would put the honor in the honor system on the airlines versus right now where it's just the passengers.
1: Absolutely. But at least there would be a human being looking at the vaccination record or the recovery record uh, before the person has permission to enter Israel.
0: Now we're having this discussion about tourism uh, also at an interesting time because we are just a month and a half ahead of uh, Christmas and uh, that's usually a time when a lot of Christian tourists come to Israel. You think we're looking at something similar this year or we're not there yet?
1: Well, the Christian tourists are different story because they tend to come in groups and these groups are being like closely watched and police where they go, you know, who they mix with and those who aren't fully vaccinated are actually being allowed in the country fully vaccinated by the Israeli definition. They've only had two vaccines and one is more than six months ago. Those who are not fully vaccinated are being required to be tested every few days. So, you know, those are the ones who are being really watched and regulated, those Christian groups. I think if there's a danger of unvaccinated or not sufficiently vaccinated people, bring COVID in or bringing a variant in it's more the problem of the individual tourists and um, you know especially those who tend to you know flood into the country to uh, to attend uh, family events uh, etc.
0: Elison, thank you for your great reporting on this and uh, of course we encourage our listeners to keep looking for Elison's stories on arts.com if you're interested in this issue. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me Amir.
0: After the break we'll hear from Joel Rosenberg and evangelical. Israeli citizen who met with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and thinks peace between Jerusalem and Riyadh could be closer than we think. Our guest today is Joel Rosenberg, originally from Syracuse, New York, but joining us today from Jerusalem. And Joel is an author, an activist, and someone who has had an incredible journey in recent years tying together Israel, the Arab regimes in the Middle East, and evangelical Christians from the United States into one unbelievable story. Welcome to the Arts Weekly Podcast, Joel.
2: Well, it's great to be with you, Amir. And I will say that's a unique set of identities and stories.
0: Tell us a bit about yourself, first of all. How did you get to doing something as extraordinary as bringing a group of evangelical Christian leaders from America to meet the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to talk about relationships with Israel? well
2: uh, the short version is that I am a failed political consultant I mean I everyone I worked for in Washington DC lost or if they you can laugh it's okay uh, it's true or if they did well they did but it was years after I was involved in their career so then I started writing, Political thrillers, motchanim Politim. team, okay, and I began John, John, John Le Carre style. Yeah, uh, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, Tom Clancy, uh, Jason Bourne, that, that genre, but all about the Middle East and what was going on, and they became big bestsellers in the United States, uh, five million copies sold. So in time, it turned out that you know when you write your first novel, Amir, you want your mother to be able to find it at a bookstore within 100 kilometers of her house, right? That's, that's your goal. <laughs> that, that's all you want
0: in life at that <laughs> must point. Must
2: speak. That's, you know, you can't ask for more. You can ask, but you, you hope at least for that. Not only did they become New York Times bestsellers, but they began to be read over time by really unusual and powerful people. Uh, presidents of the United States, vice presidents, secretaries of state, but King Abdullah, of Jordan, read one of my series, and uh, it turns out it was a series about Isis trying to assassinate
0: him. He was a named character in the book. Well, I would want to read a book where somebody sure. says Isis is coming after me, Exactly. For sure. I'm
2: not sure if it was the brightest idea to make him an actual named character, but I did. Uh, Isis is trying to kill him, his family blow up his palace, and take over his kingdom.
0: don't tell the listeners everything. No,
2: that's the hook. That's the (laughs) hook. And that was a novel series called The Third Target and The First Hostage and Without Warning. Anyway, long story short, His Majesty read the second book in the series. And rather than banning me from the kingdom forever, which I am a neighbor, and uh, he invited my wife and me to come for five days And get to know him. And this was what year? 2016. So you go to meet the king in Amman? Yeah, exactly. And my wife and I have lunch with him. The first meeting we have is lunch, but it's a five-day set of meetings. But he says, Joel, I, I was thinking where would it be nice to meet you for the first time? And uh, then he said, well, I thought you did blow up my palace. <laughs> uh, so I thought I'd bring you here to the palace. We'll show you around. I said, well, it is lovely, uh, your majesty. And yeah, oh, yeah, he, he said, you know, it was an interesting choice for you to make me a character. But I see that my staff, you, you fictionalize their names. But I buy copies of your book, he said. And I give them to my staff and I show them, I say, here, here, this is you on page 47. You don't make it through the terrorist attack. (laughs) Anyway, he had a tremendous sense of humor. It was fascinating as a Jewish, evangelical, dual U.S.-Israeli citizen. We'll talk about that in a minute, what all of that uh, means together. It's uh, Balagan, but uh, I like it. it. But to sit with the 43rd generation direct descendant of the prophet Muhammad in a palace, about a character I'd written about, like as though he were fiction, that was just fascinating. At the end of the five days, he invited us to a, a two and a half hour private dinner at his private palace, just with him and a few close friends. At the end of that, I said, you know, I've learned so much. We had such a great respect for you before we came, but now we've learned so much more. Would you have any interest in evangelical leaders in the United States who love Israel, but need to understand an Arab, Muslim, moderate perspective. Would you have any interest in in having them come over to, to get to know you the way we have? And he said, Joel, why don't you and I set up a delegation together? And that set into motion what turned into six evangelical delegations, only one to Jordan, two to Egypt to meet with President Abdel Fattah el sisi two to Saudi Arabia of all places to meet the most controversial, consequential leader in the Middle East, I would argue, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and one to meet Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And we've been invited by the king to go to Bahrain, but it's been postponed several times because of COVID. We hope to go next year.
0: So before we go into all the meetings, and I would be very interested to hear about everything from a a CC to MBS do you define yourself as an evangelical christian because you are also a citizen of israel from a jewish background help the listeners understand (laughs) this complex puzzle sure so my mom's side is not jewish okay english
2: methodist uh, white anglo-saxon protestant from upstate new york so under halakhic law i'm not jewish okay my dad's side is jewish orthodox jewish they all escaped out of the pogroms in Russia in the early 1900s. Now, my dad was born in in the United States in Brooklyn, so he's a first-generation American. But from that side, that's the Joel Rosenberg portion of the program. But they were both agnostics in the 1960s when they met. They got married in 65, had me in 67. And in time, very... Briefly, in time, they really went searching. They read the Quran, they read the Bhagavad Gita, they read the New Testament, and in time, they eventually both became followers of Jesus as Messiah. Now, my father thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul who believed this. (laughs) He'd never heard of a Jew who believed in Jesus. He'd never met one. And in 1973, there weren't that many. But that was a spiritual and cultural revolution in our family and... In you know over time, I came to faith also in Jesus, and and yet that's what pulled me into understanding my Jewish roots and heritage much more because I became fascinated. How can you be a Rosenberg and believe in Jesus? Like, what is that all about? And how did you end up in Israel? So I married a Gentile wife, but who evangelical, but loved uh, Israel, loved Jews, uh, was a Jewish studies minor at Syracuse University, where I went to school also, and. We started a, a nonprofit to help Holocaust survivors and strengthen Christians here and care for the poor and needy. And we've invested more than $80 million in humanitarian relief and other type of work here. So we were coming in and out, but we just kind of sense, you know, we, we, your listeners may or may not believe me or care, but the truth is we just sensed that God was telling us to come we didn't really need to we were still being involved in this country without being citizens but we came now being believers in jesus we assumed that the interior ministry and everybody else would freak out and you know i'm fairly googleable and and and, and, and you, you, and you know, were
0: eligible for israeli citizenship because your father was a jewish man and right. but then you were afraid that because of your christian evangelical very public activity you might not get it. This is basically yeah, the argument. I wasn't
2: afraid of it, but I, but I did. It turns out our lawyer told us there's two tracks. If your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. Yeah. Unless, of all, unless you believe in Jesus, and then you're off the team. Can't make Aliyah. If your father's side is Jewish and your mother is provably not, then you're not really, really Jewish by halakhic law but you're Jewish enough that Hitler would have killed you. Indeed. So you would have you you have the right to come back and it doesn't matter what you believe because it, you how can you leave a team you were never on? So I didn't argue that's the law. So we applied, we assumed What, what year was this? We applied in 2013 mm-hmm. and we received our papers in uh, our citizenship, our Tehudad Zahut team, in uh, March 2014. And, and we you... moved here in August of 2014 in the middle of a oh, rocket war. in the war. middle of the war with yeah, Hamas. Hamas the...
0: wanted to welcome us and make us feel part of the team here. Very nice welcome. And now, after establishing all of this history, I want to talk about one other important event, which I think contributed to the diplomatic effort that you're going to tell us about in a second, and that's the 2016 election. You met the King of Jordan already when, by the time that happens, but suddenly evangelical Christians who were up to that point mostly in the opposition to the Obama administration became the closest religious group to the new center of power. That's right, and I was opposed to it. <laughs> I
2: had been a very outspoken never-Trumper. During the Republican primary, in the primaries, there were 17 candidates. He was 18th on my list, <laughs> but he he got the nomination. What what intrigued me though was that he chose Mike Pence to be his vice president. Now, why was that important? Because Mike was a friend of mine who became a friend after I learned after, uh, that he and Karen, his wife, were readers of my novels, and they invited me out to lunch years ago in Indiana. Well, it actually was in, in, when he was in the House of Representatives uh-huh. in Washington. Mm-hmm. But yes, when he became governor, they invited us out to the mansion and to
0: stay there. And you know, it was in, in general, I think the choice of Pence as the VP made a big difference with huge. evangelical. That's what was the, the final, let's say, the closer. Mamash, it, was, it was the single defining
2: effort that said, we, we have a phrase in conservatism, uh, people are policy. Mm-hmm. and when you pick someone that sort of represents and you can trust that guy you say i don't know maybe this is really where trump is going so i ended up voting for trump reluctantly at the end but mostly i was sort of joking with my friends well i'm how can i vote against a ticket where somebody has read my books <laughs> and likes them and even likes me like how could i be against that ticket but in the new book that i just released in september called enemies and allies I tell this story of how unlikely, Amir, that it is. For me, with all those identities, I'm sort of the last person that you would think would be invited to meet with devout Muslim leaders, kings, crown princes, presidents, prime ministers, much less to get to know the leadership of of Israel, given a Jewish background and, and, and faith in Jesus. All of that is usually
0: like, what? That's just crazy. Like, no, we don't want to meet with you. But that has not been the case. After Trump is now president, and you've already had this invitation to go to Jordan, and you start to organize this delegation, who are the people that you're bringing with you to the palace in Amman? Well, so I, I began to think that through. How do you
2: how do you choose representatives? We don't have a, a pope uh, like the Vatican has. How do you, We don't have one-stop shopping. <laughs> you know, how do you pick a... a, a 10 or 12 people that represent a cross-section. But I should add, Amir, that as I was trying to figure this out, President Trump, to his credit, invited President el-Sisi to Washington. And I got invited to meet with el-Sisi in a group of about 60 uh, Middle East experts that were meeting with him.
0: I I remember that day because we talked afterwards. Yeah,
2: and I tell the story in Enemies and Allies. But what's interesting is when the whole meeting was done, I had a chance just to chat with Sisi Personally. And I said, I want to thank you, Mr. President, for rescuing a hundred million Egyptians from the reign of terror of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's like, well, you're welcome. He has no idea who I am, right? I'm just I'm in the room. But and then I said, Well, I want to thank you also. You're reaching out to Jewish leaders. You've got Pope Francis coming in a few weeks at that time. Uh, you are here in Washington meeting with a wide range of Middle East experts. Uh, you're meeting with Egyptian Coptic Christians. I I don't ever remember an Egyptian leader having that level of interfaith outreach. And he said, well, this is the new Egypt, Joel. So I said, well, I haven't noticed that you've reached out to evangelicals. Is that maybe I've missed it? He said, no, you're right. I I haven't. I said, well, I I would encourage you. And then I just mentioned almost in passing that King Abdullah and I were you know, I just met him, and we were developing this thing. I really just wanted to plant a seed, Amir. I wasn't inviting myself to Cairo. Uh, but he said, well, that's a great idea. Why don't? Would you like to bring a delegation to come to meet with me? By the fall of 2017, we went to Egypt for five days, and then directly to Jordan for four days. Who is we? On this we. So we had about 11 or 12 evangelical leaders with me. It was a cross-section racially and male and female and um, different theological views. But the short version, uh, Tony Perkins uh, is a famous American evangelical runs the Family Research Council. Uh, Jerry Boykin, former three-star army general who was the commander of Delta Force. We had, yeah, it just uh, just Miche- an array, Miche- Michelle Miche- Bachman, yeah. who's uh, a congresswoman. congresswoman, intelligence committee, ran for
0: president. And, and some of the people were also members of President Trump's council of evangelical uh, advisors right so johnny moore is both a pastor an author an activist
2: and he was the co-founder and co-chairman of trump's advisory committee for evangelicals i wanted to pick people that were close to trump but also people that had no connection i Mm -hmm. did i'd never met president trump at that point it was a good mix and in the book enemies and allies i you know I, i list it through but the point is I didn't want to go by myself. I really felt that if a door is opening to meet with this level of leadership, people need to come with me and then they'll go and keep talking about it, their own observations well beyond my... Influence. We had the former president of the National Religious Broadcasters. We had the current president at the time of the National Religious Broadcasters. This is an organization of and, thousands and, and of most, Christian journalists. Most of these
0: people, they've probably visited Israel before. They've certainly met Israeli politicians, perhaps prime minister at the time, Netanyahu. How many of them have ever met an Arab leader, the leader of an Arab Muslim country before? The
2: only one that had, to my recollection, well, two... Johnny Moore, I believe, had met King Abdullah in Jordan before. I'm almost positive. And the most prominent Egyptian evangelical in the world, but particularly in the United States, is uh, Dr. Michael Youssef. And he came and he had met, uh, I don't I don't think he met Sisi, but he'd met senior officials but before. So but most no, of the people, no, nothing was, before. Uh, who, who has? <laughs> what, what Christian leaders have ever been invited to go meet Egyptian Christians? Mubarak didn't do it. No, Sadat no, didn't do it.
0: Now, when this meeting happens, you know, these are leaders, especially King Abdullah, but also President Sisi, who, while their countries have peace with Israel, they are also leaders who have very clear stances on the Palestinian issue that are not exactly identical to the common view in evangelical uh, Israel-supportive communities in America. Take us into that dialogue when the king, for example, who's been saying for years, you know, a two-state solution is very important for Jordan, and there need to be two capitals in Jerusalem, and President Sisi, who is the mediator basically between Israel and Hamas at times of war, How do these interactions look with people that I think if you came and told them there need to be two states in the Holy Land and Jerusalem needs to be home to two capitals, they would say, well, you're anti-Israel.
2: Yes. So it's a great question. and, and And I go into it in the book. But I'll give you a few quick thoughts. First, King Abdullah, to his credit had had quite a range of interactions with various types of Christian leaders, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and even evangelical. Uh, Rick Warren, the famous pastor from California, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote The Purpose Driven Life. He'd he'd been there. So it wasn't like... So Jordan Jordan King had done the most Mm outreach. Egypt had done none. They had never had an evangelical delegation until I brought one. But the the key there, Amir, was that both Egypt and Jordan had active peace treaties and security relationships, intelligence relationships with the state of Israel. El-Sisi was very open and on the record about his warmth towards Netanyahu and how close those ties were uh, as they worked together to fight terrorists in Sinai. That was fascinating. King Abdullah wanted his meeting off the record. You know, you can imagine that, that, that it's more sensitive for a smaller country that's Largely a Palestinian population. But still, they had peace treaties and they were trying to educate pro Israel evangelicals about their perspective. And and that was legitimate and it was right. And I was, you know, that's why I wanted to have those meetings. And that's why they wanted to have those meetings. What changed was when countries that didn't have peace
0: with Israel, decided to invite us. like, And and this is where I want to talk mostly, because we we're, we can talk for hours or not, but I want to ask Happy you to mo- do a multi-part series yeah, with you, Amir. M- mostly about MBS, yes. Muhammad ben Salman. Because from some people could say, you know what, Joel, put aside Sisi and Abdallah. Maybe MBS was using you guys in a way. This guy is under so much pressure in Washington. He's accused of ordering the murder of a Washington Post columnist all kinds of terrible human rights abuses in his own country. You know, the whole thing with the arrests of the leadership that were kept in the Ritz Hotel. And so some people could uh, cynically say he thought evangelicals have the ear of President Trump. And uh, he invites you guys to get uh, some good publicity out of it and get uh, Trump's friends, supposedly, well, maybe not you, but others on the group, to tell the president what a wonderful ally MBS is.
2: I think that's an understandable criticism. And I think that
0: there's no question that
2: the Saudis, like every government, has their objectives if they're going to invite us and do something they've never done before. The, the foreign minister, Adel Al-Joubert, personally told me, Joel, you understand that you're the first Christian leaders in 300 years Uh, that the Saud family has controlled most of the Arabian Peninsula that have ever been invited to the palace? No,
0: I did not know that. Well, and you also go there as an Israeli citizen. This is in 2018? Yes, right. Now, I'm sure the head of Mossad has met the Saudi king over the years, maybe. There have been rumors about Prime Minister Olmert at the time. We know Prime Minister Netanyahu visited, I think, in 2020. But I've not heard about an Israeli citizen who is not at the level of Prime Minister or Mossad chief. Meeting with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, which is basically what happens when you take your delegation to meet him.
2: That's correct. Uh, A senior Israeli official told me in 2018, Joel, do you realize you're the first Israeli citizen in the history of the country that has publicly met with the leadership of Saudi Arabia? You know, once I thought about it, of course, that you know, yeah. we we would all know the other, but we there is no other.
0: Yeah, you have Israeli Arab citizens. This is a very interesting side note. Who go to Saudi Arabia to Mecca for the Hajj. You know, they take a bus through from Jordan and go to, and they get some kind of temporary Jordanian documents. But the, the Hajj doesn't include stops in Riyadh at the palace right. for sure. No.
2: So going back to your actual original mm. question, look, let's be clear about several points. First, we were invited to come to Riyadh before the Khashoggi murder happened. So it was invited, we were invited in the late summer. Mm -hmm. And we, as best as we can tell, Khashoggi was murdered on or around October 2nd. So we had already been invited and we'd already accepted. So that's number one. Number two, MBS didn't need a back channel to Trump. He could just say, what's up, Jared Kushner? Well, yeah, but also Trump had come to Riyadh, his first stop. I mean, for a man, one of the reasons I was opposed to Trump in 16 was he'd called for this complete Muslim ban. Like, that's insane. Okay, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. But no, I'm not. You can't just say no Muslim can enter the country. It's just that was wrong. Now, to his credit, he, he changed his policy, but still. Imagine then coming and meeting with every single Arab Muslim leader. Isn't the head of Iran?
0: Yeah, at this uh, in Riyadh at, at this huge the event, orb, the Orb Conference, is the, the is Orb Conference, yeah. and
2: then taking a direct flight on Air Force One to, from Riyadh to, to,
1: to Tel Aviv. Yes. this was which, this was
0: big. Which produced one of the most beautiful moments of the Trump presidency when, when he meets President Rivlin in Jerusalem and says, "We just come back from the Middle East." <laughs> 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 but he but, felt like he was it, in the West again at that yeah, point. But, but so but,
2: so my, but my my point is is simply that. MBS didn't need a, a back channel to Trump. What did he want? He wanted a front channel, a, a front door to talk to 60 million pro-Israel evangelicals who do care about peace. OK, we pray for peace. We long for peace. We press for peace. Not everybody in the Israeli media realizes that uh, one of the highest objectives of evangelicals is to pray for and, and support peace. So the question is how does Saudi Arabia change its image in a country of 330 million people when you don't have one pope or one – it's not one-stop shopping. You have to build a wide range of relationships. If if he was using us, we had a reason too. There's not a single church on Saudi soil. There's 1.4 million Christians. They're all foreign workers, okay. I I wasn't ready to get in with him about Muslim converts to Christianity uh, in the Saudi society. There was – that was a little too much. But there's 1.4 million foreign workers who are Christians with their families. They don't have a single church to go to. We wanted to say, if you, if we're the first Christian group in 300 years to meet with the leadership- We want
0: to raise this point.
2: We want to raise this point. And we want to raise human rights points. And we want to press him, will you be ready to make peace with Israel? And what do you and, think and, and of and the Ayatollah? What, and, and
0: why did he think about making peace with Israel? What was his answer? It was the one topic he went off the record. He spent 30 minutes with us. You know, uh, Ehud Barak, the former Israeli prime minister, uh, when he has a conversation, he likes to say, um, this is American off record. And Israeli journalists asking, what is American off record? Uh, and he says, you know the difference between Israeli and American off record? Two weeks. Yeah, well... So American of Forget actually... So, but it's been three years. We are... You're, we you're are, not, not going to share Bennett, it with us?
2: No. We are... I, I like you, Amir, and we've done some good things together, but I can't. And this is why. Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, had told us on the same trip just a few days earlier, off the record... I'm going to make peace with Israel. And that happened. And it happened, but we didn't leak it. We were sitting on the biggest story in the Middle East in a quarter of a century. We didn't say anything because we'd given our word. And to us, the trust is more important than the headline. So we had a two-hour meeting with MBS. We began by having to press him hard on the whole Jamal Khashoggi issue because it had happened just weeks before we arrived. But we also covered, he, he went on the record with us to say that he considers the Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, as the
0: new Hitler. I remember that quote emerging from the meeting. Yeah. Now, I, I want to take you a bit forward in, in the journey and sure. uh, in, 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 and to go a little beyond also what you cover in the book and take you to today. Do you see the new government in Israel, the one led by Naftali Bennett, Having the same level of support, acceptance uh, among evangelical Christians as the governments led by Netanyahu? As a government, yes. Juggles love
2: Israel unconditionally. It's not because of Bibi, you're saying? It, no, but no, no, in terms of our love for the state, our love for the Jewish people, our unconditional love and support for a government of Israel. Now, if Olmer's trying to divide Jerusalem, that's a problem and we're going to speak out. Doesn't mean we don't love him, doesn't mean we're going to turn against Israel because of Olmert. Bibi was very outspoken in his love for evangelicals, called us the greatest friends of the state of Israel, and actively and consistently reached out to the evangelical world. So that's good politics, it's good policy, and it built trust. What I've told Yair Lapid, whom I know personally, and I've told Naftali Bennett's you, you, staff. You,
0: you interviewed him recently in your website, All Israel, right? All Yair Israel Lapid. News. That's yes. right. That's yes. right.
2: And I've and I've. He was actually the first interview when he was still opposition leader that we did with a Knesset member when we launched All Israel News on September first. So 1st he, of so last he year.
0: understands Yair Lapid, the importance. I also saw that he uh, had a speech at the annual conference this year of Christians United for Israel Lapid. and
2: and the Christian Media Summit last yeah. week
0: and several yeah
2: he I've been talking to him encouraging him and I'm I'm sure other people have too you can build out a relationship because it's about Israel it's not about you personally but support for Israel doesn't require Bibi Netanyahu to be in the prime minister's but trust requires a relationship mm-hmm. Now I have not yet met Bennett. I, I've gotten to know his his staff somewhat. I'm making the same case to them. Obviously, he had to get through
0: getting a couple <laughs> he, of budgets he's, passed. He's been a bit busy.
2: But now my main message to the prime minister is: you can build out a really
0: strong, long term relationship. If MBS could do it, certainly you can. And then let's talk a bit about. And you know, we don't have a lot of time left. But Biden and the Abraham Accords and the potential to expand them. Do you see an interest on behalf of this new administration? Do you think it's a real possibility that we'll see progress with other Arab states? We saw recently Secretary of State Blinken hosting Lapid and the Foreign Minister of the United Arab Emirates. There has been some media reporting about Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, talking to the Saudis about this. Where do you see the chips fall?
2: I think the Biden administration was slow out of the gate, but they're beginning to catch up. I think that Biden realizes, and his team, uh, Sullivan, Blinken, the whole team, that this should be a bipartisan issue. It shouldn't be just a Trump thing. I think that's wise and good. And I actually think the Biden team realizes that they're not getting big wins domestically. They need some big well, wins they, they somewhere. Had
0: infrastructure last week, but... Yeah, I get what you're saying.
2: Well, they asked for $3.5 They got a lot less. So they feel embattled. They're losing. They lost the Virginia governor's race. They, his numbers are plunging. If he held a summit in Jerusalem with Mohammed bin Salman and Naftali Bennett, and the two of them eventually make peace, that's a big win. That's a big win. You
0: think that's a realistic option?
2: Well, I wrote a novel about it a few years ago called The Jerusalem Assassin. But he didn't have Naftali Bennett. It didn't, no, I, it was a fictional character. But look, I would say that the Saudis are moving the, in the exact right direction. And the meeting that MBS had in Neom, northwestern Saudi, with Pompeo, Netanyahu, and Mossad chief Yossi Cohen in December, which I write about in the book, that's a big deal. It was off the record and there was no pictures. It's still big. We all know it happened. Yes. And it tells us The Saudis want to go this direction, but they need some American encouragement.
0: You know what? This is going to be a tough question for you. But when people talk about everything that happened in the U.S. after the election, obviously the focus is on January 6th and the insurrection and the the calls to violence. For me, one thing that I find also very troubling is that there was no real presidential transition. You know, when we look back at the history of America and the Middle East, After George H.W. Bush loses the election to Clinton, he briefs him on the progress that was made in Madrid. That, of course, is the preparation for what comes later. You know, Oslo agreement with Jordan. When Clinton sees his vice president Gore lose to George W. Bush, there is a transition. He tells him about Arafat famously, don't trust the son of a bitch. He lied to me. He will lie to you. When Obama comes in, instead of uh, at the end of the Bush term, they talk about uh, Operation uh, Olympic Games that infected the Iranian nuclear program. Maybe the fact that Donald Trump never sat down with Joe Biden, recognized his win in the election and told him, hey, this is what we've done so far with the United Arab Emirates and, and Bahrain. This is where it's standing with the Saudis. Here is what I think you should do with the Israelis. Slowed down this process. Perhaps. I think the primary
2: reason was that Biden doesn't want to do anything that makes it look like he's giving Trump credit for anything. But the Abraham Accords was, was the only topic that Biden said something nice about Trump during the campaign. And this is to his credit.
0: Yes, he did. It, it, and, as they were clashing with one another.
2: Yes. And here's the headline, I think, for this podcast. Biden has a an a historic opportunity to bring MBS and the Israelis to make the peace deal that I think all the evidence that's public suggests that both sides want, and Biden gets a win, and I don't see where he's going to get a win in foreign policy anywhere else right now. Where
0: do the Palestinians fit into this issue? Because Saudi Arabia historically has said that movement towards peace with Israel will require also movement on the Israeli side to address at least some Palestinian demands. And historically, there was the Arab Peace Initiative and a call to end the occupation. Maybe it's not there anymore, but something, I believe, will need to happen on the Palestinian front. Or do you think we're past that? Well, the Saudi Peace Initiative required no
2: Arab state to make peace with Israel until the Palestinians did. Yeah, that's did. water under the bridge. And yeah, okay, so four Arab countries have done it. With Saudis quiet encouraged. Sa- well, quiet, but they've said positive things, yes, they allow the definitely. flights, they what do so, you what do you so, think they would ask for today? I think they want F thirty fives and patriot missile batteries. I don't yes, they care about the Palestinians, but you can't push the mayor of Ramallah
0: Mahmoud Abbas Mahmoud Abbas,
2: eh? Abbas yeah. to, to make a decision that he doesn't want to make. But, you...
0: but by the way, do you think uh, if he wanted to bring an evangelical delegation to Ramallah uh, to his uh, mayoral compound, as you call it, uh, you know, or he called it the presidential compound, do you think there would be the same level of interest from evangelical leaders to meet with him? Some
2: would not do it. I-, I would go meet with him. I mean, look, God loves Mahmoud Abbas. God loves the Palestinian people. I'm an Israeli who doesn't mind saying that because I come from a biblical tradition where Jesus said, love your neighbor. So some of my evangelical friends would say, he's not
0: a neighbor, he's an enemy. Well, Jesus said, love your enemy. Okay, we'll see what happens, but maybe now we have an invitation on the podcast. Joel Rosenberg, thank you very much for coming to talk to us about your new book, Enemies and Allies, and the history of evangelical Israeli-Arab diplomacy in the Middle East. It's an honor, Amir. Thank you so much for having me on the Haaretz podcast. And that's it for us today thanks to our producer Aaron Ehrlich and to you listeners. We'll be back again on Friday with another episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.